Grab a Bible, though, and you'll need it a little while. We'll have some on the board and some not. But turn to Hosea. It's the 28th book, so you're 11 back from the New Testament. It's actually considered a minor prophet, but it's, it's got about 14 chapters, so it's not terribly small. Um, quick catch up. The story of God is what we've been following for almost a year now. And it begins with God creating all things. He created in that Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, chose sin, chose to eat the eat from the tree, right? Eat the fruit from the tree, even though God said don't. And as a result, sin came into the world and, and death too. They they die because they cheated on God because they took that fruit and they 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 betrayed God. And so as a result, God made a promise though to the woman. He told Eve that a child from Eve. Uh, would bring redemption, would bring salvation, would would defeat death, would would right all of the wrong. And so we've been following that story through Scripture, looking for that person to come that God promised would come. Uh, we saw the flood and how God carried a family through the flood so that that protected that one family, Noah and his family. And they came through the other side, and then God focused his attention on Abraham, a descendant of Noah, And then Abraham had children, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had 12 children who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they became this big whole nation. And then this nation is ruled by judges. Um, And these judges, kind of like a a president type thing, these judges would make decisions and would defend their people and do these kind of things and lead the armies and all that stuff. But sometimes the people would go right back to sin as soon as they did things right and God set them free. And it created this loop of doing right and being good for a while and then doing bad and things going wrong again. And it looped and it looped and it looped. And then the people wanted a king. So God appointed to them a king. And we came through this time of kings. And that's what we've been kind of looking at now is the kings. But... Alongside the kings, they had prophets. Prophets were people who spoke from God, for God to the king. Because everybody, like we have all these Bibles back there, that's not the case back then. They didn't have Bibles everywhere. They had someone who needed to speak for God, and those people were called prophets. Well, what those people wrote is what you do have in your Bible. And they wrote them to the kings and the people at the time that they were around. You have major prophets and minor prophets. I know y'all didn't ask for this, but you're going to get it. So the major prophets are major. Why? Why do you think they're called major? They're big, long books. So Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, these guys wrote long, long prophets, books of prophecy. Minor prophets then would be prophets that are what? Short. So Jonah, you know, a few pages or, or you know, these guys that are short. This one's actually got uh, several chapters, but it's considered minor. So anyway, the other thing, too, is you should be starting to feel the weight of sin and, like, the frustration of why do they keep going back? Why do they keep sinning? Why do we keep having to send these prophets to tell them, repent, stop it, do right? Why does that keep happening? And if you were reading Every page as we went through, by now you would really begin to be desperate, like in your heart. And I'm telling you, you should do it sometime. I'm gonna, I'll put reading plans back there. You can take one with you at some point. And if you want to go through the whole word chronologically, do it. And when you come through all this time of all these prophets, the weight just gets heavy. And you're just thinking, when is this person that God promised to Eve ever going to come make things right? And about the time you can't stand to read any more horrific Depressing, 
painful, hurting stuff, there's a star in the sky in Bethlehem. And it's such a cool moment if you read through the whole word. So, anyway, we're not, we're not to the star yet, unfortunately. So, go to uh, Hosea and... Um, This week, it's who loves the unlovable. I'd say there's a lot of people that claim they do, but considering what we're going to look at today, I don't know that anybody would love this kind of unlovable. Um, The real question, though, is would God? And among the gods, quote, unquote, of this world, only Jesus can say, I do. Look at uh, Hosea chapter 8. Let me just read a couple of verses, uh, and then we'll jump back in. 11, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Chapter 11, verse 8. So Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, God speaking. He said, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How could I treat you like Zeboim? My heart, it recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I'll not execute my burning anger. I'm not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One In your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Let me pray. Lord, your word is awesome. Say that every time because that is the word. You are awesome, Lord. Thank you for the great privilege of looking at your word. Lord, I moved by this already. Just thank you for loving the unlovable because I promise I'm that guy. Thank you for loving me, Lord. Thank you for loving all of us. Lord, thank you for what it costs for you to love us. And we love you back. We pray, Lord, your word speaks in Christ's name. Amen. So I've probably shared this with you guys before. And if I have, cool, you'll hear it twice or three times or ten times. I don't know. But uh, years ago, Molly and I uh, made multiple trips to West Africa to an Islamic Republic. But on one particular trip, the second one, uh, what we were doing is we were visiting prisons and supporting an NGO, which is like a nonprofit, in that country that's... It's, it's developed and, and directed by Christians, but nobody knows that because it's illegal to be a Christian. So they're just a nonprofit that helps inmates, um, job skills and stuff like that. So we were coming as Americans who do the same thing here in the United States, work with prisons, but we were coming to see what they do. That's, that was the guise of being there. Anyway, as a result of being there, I meet this guy the second time we're there who works in those prisons. And uh, he's a, you know, he lives there and he works in those prisons. And uh, upon talking to him through a translator in a room alone one night while being there, this guy gives his life to Christ. This is huge because that was a death sentence for him to do that, and he knew it. Uh, for him to make the confessions that he made was a death sentence. But he, but he was so full of joy, jumped up and hugged us. I mean, it was the most powerful conversion i guess you could say I've, I've ever seen he was so full of love knowing knowing that what he i mean like he wouldn't even let us take his picture together just because he was a little bit he's still afraid it's a real deal but i asked this guy because what was wild is i won't go to the, i don't have time to go to the whole conversation i'll tell you later but what was wild is he start he at in our conversation weren't even talking about jesus because that's not allowed he said He just looked at me and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Like he just said that out of nowhere. Uh, And I was shook for a second. I thought, are we we being busted is honestly what I thought. Like how does this guy know this? But it led to the conversation that led to him coming to the Lord. So I asked him, I was like, so how did this happen? Like you clearly knew this verse. And he said, 
for nine years, he had been looking for who is really God. And that the reason why was because he was in this prison and he loved these inmates. And he said, I don't understand why I love them when society doesn't. And supposedly Allah doesn't either. They're God. And he said, so I want to know who's the God. This is literally what he said. I want to know who's the God who loves the unlovable. What a great way to approach finding the Lord. And he said, I had a Bible, which would have been illegal, so he would have had it hidden. And he said, so for nine years I searched. I kept coming back to that Bible. And he said, no matter what, I just kept coming back to the realization that only Jesus fits that description. So by the time I sat down, he was already ready. So today we're going to look at Hosea. And it's a hard book with some really hard talk about justice from God. But it's also a story of amazing grace. Great and incredible grace. And though God's the only perfect righteous judge who does deal with sin justly, he's also a loving father who hurts when he must discipline and he restores the broken, loving even the most unlovable. It's an amazing book to read. And if you got the sheets, that's great. If not, you can get one later. But the, the, the thought, the point to remember, if God can love us so deeply, redeeming us even though he's hurt by our sins. We should love and forgive others just as patiently. Hard to do. So who's Hosea? Well, verse 1, chapter 1, start there. I know you're in 11. You can come back here in just a second. But in verse 1, chapter 1, um, it says the word of the Lord. That should be familiar. We've seen that multiple times with these prophets. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. And again, I, that word means walked. So I believe this is an experience where the person of God called the word came to Hosea and told him, Son of Viri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's a, several kings, right? And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So you have kings of Judah, kings of Israel, not backing up over all that. Just remember, this is a time when the nation is split in half. And there's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The north's capital is Samaria. The south's capital is Jerusalem. They have different kings. Uh, and so this guy is during that time. It's probably mid-700s. And based on the one king there, Uzziah, that ought to be a common thread. You've heard his name several times. Josh Priest a few weeks ago with Isaiah in the time of this guy. Uh, I was talking last week about Amos, who was in the time of this guy. Jonah's in the same time period. Micah's in the same time period. All these guys together, Isaiah is a major prophet, but major and minor prophets there. They're in the same time period preaching to the same groups of people, mid-700s before Christ. He's probably in the north, uh, but clearly he was a prophet for a long time. Actually, he was a prophet across six kings in the north and four kings in the south. Now, all those kings didn't live super long, so don't think that's It is a long time, but it's not as long as it sounds. In fact, corruption was so bad in the north that four of those six kings assassinated each other to take the throne. Back to back to back. Uh, ultimately, Assyria is going to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in 722. Historically, it happened. 722, is, uh, Assyria, excuse me, conquered the northern kingdom and erased it. Did horrible things and destroyed and erased it and demolished Samaria, the capital, and conquered it. And Hosea is the last voice of God to the northern kingdom. So it, the end will come after his mouth stops. So this is the last plea of God 
in a sense, to the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is only a few generations behind. In 586 B.C., Babylon demolishes them. We'll talk about that when we get to Daniel. So it's, it's sad stuff. It's heavy stuff. But in the days of Hosea's writing here, things seem great. Remember we talked about that with Amos. Hey, the world's fantastic. Prosperity is at this big time high. And God was a nuisance. God was a, a nuisance. You can see that. You don't have to turn back to it. But back in Amos' writing, remember, same time period, same place. Amos wrote this in chapter 8, verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and you bring the poor of the land to an end to get them out of here. We don't want them here anymore. Saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make ephah small and shekels great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell. He's being sarcastic. What he's saying is this. When is Sunday going to be over so we can go back to work and keep on cheating people? That, that's translation. When, when, are, when are all these new moons, those were festivals and things that God had appointed. The moon just marked the calendar date. So he's saying holidays that God appointed. When are these holidays when we're not allowed to eat meat and we're not allowed to whatever, or we're supposed to be in Jerusalem or we're supposed to do that? When's this going to be over so we can go back to ripping people off and getting paid? I'm, I'm ready to make bank. I'm tired. I'm tired of sitting here. There's a, there's people to be fleeced, man. That's, that's the way they feel about God. Hosea, though, focuses more on not just that, but how they turn to these false gods and these idols. Hosea is saying this. It's Jehovah plus with y'all. It's God plus. Or Jesus, we would say, plus blank. Our faith is in. Do we do that one? Man, we got to be careful. It's cheating, right? Isn't it? If you say it's Jesus plus whatever else, isn't that cheating? You know, I, for instance, <laughs> how do you think Molly, and y'all know her, how do you think Molly would respond to me if I was like, look, I'm not leaving you. I love you. I love you like crazy, man. You're, you're my whole world. It's just that I'm going to have her too and her and her and her and her. But no, 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 I ain't going nowhere. I mean, you're my girl. How, how well do you think that works? You know what I mean? She's back there grinning because she's already picturing what's going to happen. Uh in the first chapter, in the first chapter here, God points to Hosea and his wife to illustrate basically that same scenario. It's pretty heavy. It's a, it's a picture. He wants, uh, Hosea's life is going to be a picture of what God endures from his own people who claim to love him, but turn to others. And they even profit from their disloyalty to God. Get your brain around that. He charges Hosea here to have a wife who's going to be unfaithful to him. She'll even make money from cheating on him. And if that's not enough, God later charges Hosea to buy her back to pay for her to come home. Could you do that? Man. Some say it's just figurative. It's just, po- it's just poetic here that he didn't actually mean for Hosea to do this. Uh But I don't think so. I think it's pretty literal and most people don't disagree with that. But the thought is that she became the person being described. One commentary puts it like this. The Lord's command here should clearly be understood as go take yourself a wife who will prove to be unfaithful. So it's not that he was looking for the biggest cheater he could find. 
It's that the wife he took would prove to be that way, and God's telling him beforehand. And she may have left him. He may even have divorced her. We don't know. It doesn't say. But God says, take her back and pay for it. And pay for it. But our focus here is not on Hosea. It's on God. Too often the book of Hosea, the entire focus is on Hosea. It's not on Hosea, it's on God. In fact, I was talking to Josh as we were unpacking this thing. And there's 14 chapters here. And less than a dozen verses out of 14 chapters even reference Hosea the person. The entire rest of the book is about God's message to the people of Israel. So let's look at God and his character through this. Look at verse or uh, Hosea chapter 7. I'm going to skip through some verses and skip around a little. Most of it will be up here, and we'll land back in ver- chapter 11 here in just a second. Verse 13 says, Woe, Now think, think on, the, think on God, Him, who He is. Woe to them, God speaking, for they strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they rebelled against me. I, I would redeem them. That's the word buy back. That's what he's telling Hosea is going to end up having to do. I would redeem, I would buy them back, but they speak lies against me. Do you hear the tone here? Like, God's almost struggling a little bit. Desiring them, but angry. They don't cry to me from the heart. They well upon their beds, but it's for grain and wine, and they gash themselves, they, they work themselves to death, they beat themselves up to, to get what they want, and they rebel against me. They cheat. That's what it means, they cheat. Verse 15, although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they desire despise evil for me. Do you know what that's saying? He's saying they want me to die so they can go on to their other loved ones. They, they want me to die. So they can be with their lover, with with whatever they're cheating with. So if this is how God endures his people who claim to love him, but cheat on him and resent his presence there, even profiting from cheating, why is God wrestling with this at all? Annihilate him, man. Why would you put up with that? What would you do? Go on, man. Get away from me. I don't want no part of it anymore. You won't be here anyway. Go. Don't come back. I'll find better. I mean, does it pay? That's what he's suggesting here. Does it pay to live apart from God? Certainly it seems like it does, doesn't it? I mean, seriously, think about it. What what are the benefits of the little G gods of this world? There are benefits. There are great benefits to the God's little G of this world. Money, fame, power, whatever. Walk down the list. But Hebrews 11.25 tells us, yes, there are pleasures in sin, but they're temporary. And they're fleeting. You're always chasing them. They're running away. They're always gone. Galatians 6 verse 7, Paul wrote this. He said, don't be deceived. Hey, don't buy the, don't buy the lie here. Don't buy the lie. God's not mocked. You're not going to make a fool of him. Whatever one sows, that he'll also reap. Let me explain. The person who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption or decay and death. In other words, whatever you pour into you that's just for you, makes you feel good, makes you money, makes you power, makes you whatever, what's going to happen to your body one day? 
No matter what you say or do, it's going to die. It's going to decay. Your, you know, your foot's not going to heal as fast as it used to. All these things are going to start happening slowly, 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 and then you're gone. And all that stuff is the same way. So if you want to put all your investment in that stuff, fine, do it, but it's going to be gone. But, he says, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If your focus in your heart is to Christ, man, it's he's eternal. His spirit is eternal. When it's in you, it changes everything. Oh, well, I, I get it, man. But that's why we don't abandon God, see? I mean, yeah, I'm working hard. I'm doing all these things. I'm chasing money. I'm doing whatever. But I still got God. I mean, I'm not. I mean, hey, look now. Every time I score a touchdown, I do a little glory to God, you know. Every time I, every time I get a, a, a raise, I take a second to tell God, hey, you did that. Thank you so much, you know. I come to church at least once every quarter. I'm here on holidays, you know, it's not like that. Uh, they did the same thing, right? Didn't he say that? You're coming on your religious days, you're coming on your Sabbaths, but you really want me to die? He addressed it in Hosea chapter 2, verse 11. You can just make a note of some of these. I know I'm hopping around a little. Verse 11, God says, I'll put an end to all of her mirth, her joy. I'll put an end to her joy, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her appointed feasts. He's saying all these things in my laws that I gave you, I'll just shut them all down. I'll just put them all to, we'll just end Sunday. How about that? We'll just end it. Then he says in chapter 6, verse 6, I, I desire steadfast love. And not sacrifice. I don't want your sacrifices. The knowledge of God, knowing him, loving him, being intimate with him, rather than burnt offerings. And Jesus cited that in the New Testament to the religious leaders of his time. What he's saying here, by the way, little key point, salvation never comes from keeping the law. It's never, never has. If it, if it did, then why would God here be putting an end to what is supposed to be your way to salvation? That's not the case. That never, the keeping the law never did. Keeping his law is a privilege. That's what he's saying. It's an opportunity to draw near to him and have him near to us. That's what it's about. Disobeying the laws is the opposite. It separates you from that closeness to him. But look here, man. It doesn't make you a sinner because you break the law. You already are one. You got the order backwards. You break don't keep his law because you're already a sinner. And keeping his law won't save you because the fact is you're still going to sin. You're still going to break it. He alone saves. And when he does, you then have the opportunity, the experience of being in a relationship with him, of being close to him. And it gets richer when you live in his word. And the opposite happens when you don't. And that's what he's saying. Fine, I'll just take it away. I'll just take it away. Hosea speaks about all these horrors that are going to happen. It's awful. If you read the whole book, it's really awful, some of the stuff in there, these horrors that are coming uh, because Israel's rejected him, God, not the law, not because they rejected the law. They were still doing all of that. They just rejected him. They just were doing it because, hey, we've got to go to church, you know. It's hard to read, honestly, but the great shocker here is how God laces hope and promises alongside of judgment. The unreal love of God in here. You could see his genuine almost wrestle. Chapter 1, verse 7. Again, just you can see it up here, but it says, I will have mercy, God says, on the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God. That's pretty cool, by the way. God said, I will save them 
by the Lord their God? That sounds a bit schizophrenic, right? Like what? Is, and then he says, I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. He's saying, I'm going to save them myself. Yet he's speaking of himself in the third person. Honestly, he's a picture of Christ here. Hosea 2, verse 16. In that day of future time, declares the Lord, you, Israel, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, my little G, God. That's what Baal means, God. For I will remove, I will, notice the I wills, you can underline them if you want. I will remove the names of the gods, Baals, from her mouth. They shall be remembered by my name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day. It's a new covenant, we call it. Or actually it's called in the Bible, but that's what we're under. The beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the creeping thing. The whole whole earth is going to be redeemed by this. I will abolish the sword, the bow, and war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love or grace and in mercy. In justice because justice is going to be paid for you to be that bride. Hosea 14, he said in verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will heal their, look at what he's saying there. He's not even saying repent. He's saying I will heal their apostasy. You cheated on me. I'll heal that. I will love them freely. Of my own choice, I love them. Not because I have to. I do it because it's my choice to do so. For my anger is turned from them. But the really incredible language, and, and, I, and we'll come back up here and finish up quick, comes in chapter 11. We get this mind-blowing glimpse into the heart of God right here. Look in chapter 11. Look in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This is God speaking. Speaking about Israel as, as, as his own son that he rescued from bondage in Egypt. We read about all that back with Moses. Chapter 2, or verse 2. The more they called, though... The more, they, the more they were called, the more they went away. The more I called for them, the more they ran off. Some of y'all have kids, know how that is. But he's talking about this in a defiant, anger way. They, they raced off. They kept sacrificing. They didn't just run away. They, they cheated. They went to other gods. They took burning offerings to other idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim. That's another name for Israel. It's I that taught my son Israel, Ephraim, to walk. I'm the one. I'm the dad that was there that when he, when they made their first steps, I had my hands on his back. So when he started to stumble, I'm the one that caught him and helped him figure out how to walk. I took him up in my arms. I'm the one that picked him up. I'm the one that healed him, and they don't even know. Like they don't even remember the fact when they scraped their knee that time, and I picked him up and I and, and I took him in my arms and I healed their knee and made the pain go away. They don't. They don't even recognize that. Verse 4, I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, meaning the pressure and the stresses and all those things. I pulled them away. I bent down to them and fed them. Man, what an awesome statement that is. The God of all creation. I bent down and, and fed them. Did all those things. Again, you read the Bible to see God, not you. What do you see of God here? Like, what are your attributes here? What, 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 are the, what are the character, or what are his attributes? I mean, what's his character look like? What are his emotions here? 
What do you picture when you, when you read this? What if God treated his relationships like we treat ours? I'm just saying, what, what if God would cheat on you? Who's going to stop him? How important is his word now? How important is it that he is the truth? How important is it that he doesn't lie? You know, book of verse 7. It's almost like God's debating with himself here. It's almost like this talk in the Trinity, so to speak. It's really hard to, to see this and not just be blown. Look at verse 7. He says, my people are, are bent on turning away from me. But look what he says. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up. It's almost like one part of God is saying there, like, and there's only one God, so this is a bit confusing, but I, it's, it's the God we worship. It's almost like, this is the way I picture it. It's almost like the people are trying to turn to the ruler God, but the Father God, or maybe Jesus God, however you want to look at it, is, is saying, my people are bent on turning away from me, but though they call out, he was not going to respond to them. But then he's wrestling with this, and he's, he's wrecked. Look at verse 8. How do I give you up? I picture him crying, and be honest with you. Jesus cried. How do I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I make you like Edmah? How can I make you like Zeboim? Those were cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's saying, how can I make you like Sodom and Gomorrah? My heart, this is God speaking, my heart recoils within me. It disgusts me. Can you hear? His heart is literally shattered. And my compassion grows warm and tender. And like all I want to do is grab you. All I want to do is grab you. I'll not execute my burning anger. But what he's saying here is he's talking about that like Sodom and Gomorrah. Total eternal destruction. I'll not again destroy you from. So they're going to face harsh discipline. They're going to reap what they sow. Assyria is coming for them. But it's not going to be a permanent judgment from God. For I am God and not a man. I'm not a man. I do. I I am way above the weakness of man that, that, that man can't love anyway. I can. And he says. Uh, I am the Holy One in your midst, not out in outer space, not floating around in some other existence. I'm here with you in this place. I'm with you through it all, and I'm not going to come in wrath. He said, I'm not coming to destroy you completely. When he does come, he will come as the Prince of Peace. When he literally comes, it will be Jesus. He'll come Amongst them as the Prince of Peace. And in a future time, he's going to come again to defend them. That's spoke of in Revelation, but here in chapter, in verse 10 as well. They shall, at a future time, go after the Lord, Israel. They'll go after him. And when they do, they'll repent. They'll go after him. When they do, he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children are going to come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like the birds from Egypt, like the doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. They're going to come back to me when I roar like a lion. Like little cubs running to their mom and also terrifying the enemies that are around. What does it say about him to know he's got these kind of emotions, guys? What does it say about him to know he wrestles with this? That God struggles with taking action. 
And he's taking action against those he loves, but who betray him. Oprah once said she could never appreciate a God who was jealous of her. (laughs) Bless her heart. He's not now or ever been jealous of anybody. That's never been the case. He's jealous for her. Though if she belonged to him. He's jealous for those who belong. So much so that he won't allow other loves to be with us. Even if that means we have to face discipline. If you belong to him, he's not okay with it. Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. But, let's close this up. But, why buy back... A cheating wife. Uh, That is the mystery of grace, y'all. That's the mystery of grace. Why bad back a cheating wife? Again, like all the scripture, it's God's story, not ours. If, If this was about us, then it'd be teaching us, hey, cheat on your wife and then make her buy you back. Or, wives, go cheat on your husband and force him to come buy you back because the Bible says you have to. It's not about you. It's about him. Did his bride cheat? You belong to him. I mean, do do we cheat? I I do. I'll own it. I have this week. I do. You know? And would the holy, perfect, almighty God buy her back? If God still wants her, he has to. If he still wants her, he has to. And that's the cross, guys. And I love that she sang the song she did. That's what it's about, the blood. That's what the blood is about. Why is blood the price? Why is that the price, to buy back? Well, because the wages of sin is death, and we're all sinners. So to buy us back costs death. That's what it costs. And he paid it. He died. To redeem us from death. Even while. The Bible says even while we were sinners. You could say even while we were cheaters. Even while we were profiting from cheating on him. He bought us back. And then having paid the price. He defeated death by rising from the grave. So that it can't hold you either. Why? Why would he do that? Because he loves you. I I can't twist it into something super theological or mathematical because it's not. It's just that he loves you. And if it stings to hear that, if it fills you with joy but also hurts, it should. That's good. Because grace will always do you that way. And if you don't belong to him, hey, today's the day to change that. It starts by repenting. Tell him. Exactly who you are and recognize exactly who he is and trust him. Look, I'm tired of chasing other gods. I'm tired of chasing all that stuff. I want to belong to you. I want to be yours. Redeem me. Pay for me. Buy me back. And he will. The word says he promises to do so. So we're going to do one more song.
Take a few minutes, and you can come on up. We're going to take a few minutes to process this. And listen, if you're a believer in the room, and I think most of us are, if you're a believer in the room, then, then this, this is the kind of thing that ought to impact you to love others well. There ought to be some sense in your heart of how well God has loved you that burdens you to love others the same way, even if they hurt you. Even if they hurt you. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to get into it, to open it up. Lord, thank you for loving us, some say, in a scandalous way. Like it's, it's so shocking how you love us. It almost seems scandalous. Thank you for loving us even when we mess up, even when we cheat. I'm not okay with that, Lord. It, it hurts me to my core to know that you love me despite my sin. I don't feel like I've got some freedom now to sin because you love me anyway. It's, it's just the opposite. It, it hurts to think that not only do you love me anyway, but you will find me and buy me back. You're an indescribable God. You are an indescribable person. I think maybe that's why, as Josh pointed out in Isaiah, that the angels just cry, holy, holy, holy. I mean, what else can they say? Lord, I love you. We ask that you're glorified this week in our lives in Christ's name. Amen.